Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Mosaic Community Church, Philadelphia. We're located in beautiful West Philly. Um, we are a multiracial congregation that's come together to share our vision and our hope for making our great city even better and a desire that that effort overflows into our world. So we thank you for joining us today and we're glad that you stopped by from all over the globe to share in worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he is the center of our church community and it's our desire that our community reflect his concern, his care, and engagement of all creation so that we can all live spiritually connected, purpose-filled, and satisfying lives. Today, we will consider in song and in sermon and in prayer what it means to live our lives in ways that we honor God's call to keep the focus, keep in focus the interest of others along with ourselves. And we'll conclude our service with prayer and a video of our kids who are returning to school. This is something we do every year and it will be a wonderful opportunity just to cover them in prayer. So feel free to worship God quietly or with the lifting of your hands or even get up and dance if it's appropriate. Our musical worship is growing and in some ways returning to reflect the beautiful mixture of cultures that surround us. So thank you and welcome to enjoying Jesus with us. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for a new day. Not like any day we've lived before, Lord. We ask that you would help us to see the possibility, the growth, the connections that are a part of it. Lord, we thank you for this day and that we can gather here on the internet to worship you. That there, are, even though this virus came and it has kind of moved us apart, there's still ways that we connect and we're grateful for that. We ask, Lord, your blessing over what we... Um, come together to share with you. Let the songs give you praise, God, and honor. Let our, uh, the sermon speak to our hearts that we can live in ways that promote righteousness and justice. And Lord, help our care for our kids, care for one another, be evident, and allow it to touch each part that we might grow closer together and closer in our reflection of you. This is our prayer. This is our hope. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we'll welcome our new coordinator of uh, worship, uh, Kennedy Lamascus, as she leads us in worship. Oh, 
the thieves will come confess and know that you are holy and know that you are holy and all will sing out hallelujah and we will cry out hallelujah and all the hearts who are content and all who feel unworthy nothing left will know that you are holy and all will sing out hallelujah and we will cry out Shout it, go on and scream it from the mountains, go on and tell it to the masses that he from the mountains go on and tell it to the masses that he say 
today is entitled, In the Interest of Another. There are Christians who believe that the problem of poverty is caused by the poor. Even our language reveals this tendency as it consists of phrases such as helping to raise up the impoverished and the need to evaluate the status of the poor. But the funny thing is, there are no similar phrases regarding lowering the status of the rich. Too many, seek, uh, too many, such a statement would seem ridiculous, right? Is not the purpose of charity to help the poor make economic gains so as to receive the benefit accorded to that progress, those changes? Are we not to teach the poor how to improve their circumstance and help them to become more effective participants in, participants in our existing system? Providing positive intervention is a good and necessary work. We have to do that. Yet, the increasing disparity between the well-resourced, the rich, and the poor suggests that our efforts are not making or meeting the challenge that's before us. If we were dealing with widgets in a manufacturing company, we might, it might be a simple matter of modifying some verb some, some variable to solve the poverty widget problem, but it's not. As Christians, it's not enough to tweak our thoughts on one or our tweak our theology of poverty. What we need is a theology of wealth, which most Christians have given little thought to, if any. They cause the well resource to review their wealth as a resource that's for more than just them or their families, but it, that the well-resourced are placed in a position of stewardship, are given an honor to use what God has blessed them with in such a way that it overflows into blessing into other lives. It is to move away from the center not just completely, but to slide over and to allow others room to coexist with them, knowing that they have this precious gift, this precious responsibility from God. 
there is a need to develop and to be committed to a biblical framework that helps us interpret our disciplines of economics and the impact it, of its practices on not only the poor, but the impact of the practices on the well-resourced. There, there are a number of thoughts on the causes of poverty. Ron Snyder, the writer of Rich Christians in an Age of, of Hunger and the founder of uh, the Evangelical Social Action Foundation or group, divides the reasons for poverty into four broad categories. He looks at the structural causes, personal decisions and how they impact poverty, and the misguided behavioral patterns. He considers sudden catastrophes and permanent disabilities. Michael Tease and Karen Chapel cite eight hypotheses for poverty in their article entitled The Causes of Inner City Poverty, which include structural economic shifts, inadequate human capital, racial and gender employment discrimination, segregation, housing, and spatial mis mismatches, migration, growth deficits, and public policy. I think theirs is well-rounded. Then we have um, a conservative economic, uh, econ economist, uh, Lawrence Mead, who works uh, out of uh, NYU in the politics and public policy department. He believes that the habit of non-work significantly contributes to inner city poverty among Blacks and along with the dependence upon welfare. So we've heard much of this before. Now, and, and these kind of comments can generate some vigorous discussions. I, I have a few things I'd like to say on those things. But still, others would not be satisfied unless we included the lack of quality schools in urban and rural districts, the limited social networks of the poor, crime and incarceration, and that, imp that, that complex that's now on, you know, on the Dow Jones and even more. In addition to these considerations, the discipline of economics itself must be explored as a cause of poverty, especially its use to secure the position and status of the well-resourced through the axiom of self-interest. Far too many of our economic leaders believe that self-interest makes the economic world go round. What is most important is the ability of the individual to choose that which allows him or her to maximize their utility, to maximize their desire, to maximize just their gifts, to maximize their conquering of, you know, the, the business jungle. Though, reviewed, though viewed as a vice in other disciplines, self-interest, in business and economics is embraced as a fundamental tenet. It is falsely believed that each participant works for their own interest. Opportunities are created from that that overflow resulting in benefits for the entire community. But we can see today that that's not true. That's not happening. The lines of disparity or the chasm is increasing. 
This line of thought is believed with such veracity that those who do not benefit from it, like the poor, are regarded with suspicion. Those embracing the axiom of self-interest would never view themselves as part of the problem of poverty. For in this theory, wealth is gained through hard work and good decision-making. The poor are those who are lazy or waste their opportunities through wasted living or reckless living. The axiom shields the well-resourced from their responsibility to help create and maintain a just economic system, for it places the blame of poverty squarely on the shoulders of the poor and doesn't look at the systems that have been created that keep people ensnared. In essence, the poor are getting what they deserve for not working hard enough. We know this is a lie. For there are many who are working two and three jobs and are still struggling to put enough money together to pay for a place to live and food on their tables. What about those in the urban center and the rural communities? What about them and their efforts? They had no say in where the jobs were being uh, created in their communities or the types of jobs that are being created. How many have worked hard, but the quality of education that were offered to them was substandard? And this is not to slight any teacher or any of the administrators in our education system. It's to admit that our system is struggling with, to have enough resources and that the struggles that our kids are facing come into the classroom. And so we have to deal with those social issues before we can even get to the act of educating. Listen, there are those who completed college, but they lack the social networks to come that come with class privilege and with race privilege, all of which is given and not earned. And therefore, they don't learn or didn't learn the secret rules of success. These things that were communicated from family to family, from neighbor to neighbor, but they weren't taught in the classroom or given to some of us. Many have adjusted to the public policies that, that came to be called work Fair instead of welfare. But they often, people involved in that often received training for jobs that would never pay enough for all the rent and the food and clothing and educating the children. It is beyond time to recognize that working hard and living right is not enough. And in truth, they've never been enough. In many respects, getting ahead in this economic system requires, requires moral compromise. For the economics of this country are conceived on biased religious principles and biased secular planes and non-moral categories. In the way we conceive of business and economics, it separates the poor from full participation in the human community. But it also separates the well-resourced from full participation 
in our community. The current systems fail to recognize the significance of human dignity, which can only be realized when we live in community with others from all strata and with God. Not necessarily maximizing our utility for ourselves, but figuring out ways for win-win figuring out ways to maximize the health and the resources for the community. Economic self-interest does not automatically overflow into benefits for the social good or the common good. Too often the result has been an abandoning of our moral responsibility as a guide to business practices that benefit again everyone. In the wake of self-interest, the human community is faced with a damaged ecosphere. We face with damaged individuals and people groups and damaged nations as evidenced by our recent past. The financial crisis that we had in the first decade of the 21st century due primarily to exploitive practices in banking in the mortgage industry and are allowing, and, and, and we are allowing those practices to return. All the safeguards that we put up, they're being dismantled quietly in our governments, in our capitals. Some loudly, but many very quietly dismantled. And so the poor become folks who are prey for the well resource to gain even more resource. Self-interest is a vice in every discipline. In the axiom of I look out for myself because who else is going to do it in that way. It is a vice in every discipline, include business and economics. We think of ourselves as members of a developed society, right? The United States, we're part of the first world. If the purpose of development is to work for systemic change and growth, then it is a work that must be done on all fronts. We need to look at it sociologically, politically, economically, theologically, and more. Clearly, there is a need to continue to work for justice for the poor. But we have to understand that we not just work for justice for the poor, we're working for justice for the well-resourced also. To live in a just community, to have a just society requires balance. And so we are looking to restore that balance so the whole, the common good is maintained. Yet if the goal is real systemic change, then change must take place not only in the lives of the poor, but also in the well-resourced. We are all broken. We are all in need. We all experience poverty in different ways, yet we are all still poor. We all need to change. So the question arises, what does humanity do when we all share the same condition and there appears to be no way out? How do we change this? God in the person of Jesus Christ has given humanity a very clear answer. Instead of searching 
or means of escape. The scripture leads us to understand it's better to search for means to enter deeper into the situation of poverty, to enter it, to examine it, all of our poverty, and to seek solutions that bring unity. Now, if we are to do a biblical examination of self-interest, say this, before dealing directly with God's entrance into history to address the dilemma facing humanity, it's important for us to establish a, a biblical understanding of our dilemma. It is believed that the dysfunctions characterizing society create the need for us to protect our own interests. The experiences of our collective cultures has taught us that that type of protection is a matter of our very survival. Within the heart of a significant portion of humanity, if not a bit in all of us, lives a belief that if we do not look after our own, or if I don't care for mine, who else will? Our society still seems to be permeated with this survival of the fittest mentality and defines the fittest as those who are able to control and manipulate circumstances to their own advantage. This mentality was not first revealed in the, in the work of Charles Darwin and his conclusions, nor did it originate in our economic writings that, that were given to us by Adam Smith who, who created or founded our capitalistic system and its requirement for the poor and the middle class and the well-to-do. This mentality is almost as old as history itself. Again, we review this. The Book of Beginnings really does it, uh, help us. God has given us these stories to help us understand so much Recorded in the book of Genesis is the biblical account of the creation of heaven and uh, of the earth and humanity. The text is clear in regard to ownership of all creation. It all belongs to God. Yet God entrusted the care of creation to humanity. God gave the first couple two straightforward instructions. Take care of the garden and don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All too often, the problem concerning what took place in the garden is reduced to an uncomplicated, yet all-encompassing all act of disobedience. For some, the issue of disobedience is all that matters because it resulted in humanity's separation from God. But for others, the reasons for the disobedience are just as important as the act itself. Why did the first couple disobey God? What was worth the risk of separation or death? The third chapter of Genesis provides information regarding the encounter between the servant and the first couple. The servant's attempt to ensnare them ended with the lie that they would be like God if they ate the fruit. The implication was that God was withholding something from the first couple. Their contemplation of the encounter with the, serv 
the serpent. And their examination of the fruit led them to conclude that the fruit was good for food. So why would God withhold that? Pleasing to the eye. So why would God withhold that? And was able to make them wise. So why would God withhold that? The inference in Genesis 3, 6 was that people, the couple believed that God was indeed withholding it from them. The couple decided then to act, taking for themselves what God had not given them. And God's instruction not to consume the fruit, God had provided the first couple with a greater opportunity than that which was provided by the serpent. By instructing the couple to care for the garden and not to eat from the tree, it was an invitation that was extended to enter into a relationship of trusting care with God and with one another. It was one thing to suspect that God might withhold something from them, but it was an entirely different matter to act upon that suspicion. An unacknowledged option before the couple was simply reviewing their encounter with the serpent with God and sharing their concerns. But instead, they chose to act. In eating the banned fruit, the couple opened the door to a lifetime of struggle for themselves and for all of humanity, caused by a compulsive need to actively safeguard self-interest. Thus, the problem of sin is directly related to the fact that human behavior is focused on maximizing our own benefit. If this is so, then we are left to reconcile this fundamental principle, this, this thing about self-interest with the message of the gospel. But think about this. Even in the manner in which separation of sin is addressed in the life of the believer today, it reveals shades of our continued embrace of self-interest. Sin is too often viewed as individual acts of wrongdoing. Consideration is given only to the impact of sin upon the relationship between God and the individual. Hence, the remedy for sin is a request for forgiveness of each isolated occurrence of wrongdoing without an examination of its effects, affects, and effects upon the human community and creation. Sin is made a private matter and thus it's a private conversation between an individual and his or her or their God. Even David's confession against you and you alone have I sinned was recorded for public scrutiny, but we take it as instruction. I shy away from the use of the word sin because of this view of it as a private matter. Using the word sin makes me think of, of individual, of just me or just them. But when I call it separation, in and of itself, it implies relationship with others. And that's why I use the term separation instead of the fall and speak of separation as sin. Sin does not occur in a vacuum. Each disobedient act links to a web of dynamic forces that invade structures, systems, and institutions, securing what appears to be privilege for some and need for others, but entangling all in the same occurrence. Self-interest. 
initiated in the garden. Because Sinners addresses it on individual terms, the world resource failed to see that the cumulative impact is the creation of evil systems that perpetuate injustice and deal in death to those who stand outside of favor. Evil cannot simply be relegated to the workings of a faceless demonic being or beings, nor can one say that our institutions are faceless. The evil often has a face, and unfortunately, it resembles you and me. Yet the well-resourced are not the only ones who participate in the promotion of self-interests. It trickles down in numerous variations throughout society, resulting in all of our guilt. For we all act in ways to separate ourselves from each other. No one is absolved. And it confirms the scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Since all have sinned or are separating in this way, there's no hiding. What do we do when we're stripped of our excuses? Again, the answer is, instead of searching for means of escape or self-justification, it may be better to search for means, a way to enter deeper into the situation and hopefully resolve the problem from within. That's exactly what God did for humanity by entering human history in the person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul began the second chapter of the letter to the Philippians with a call to unity. He pointed to the relationship believers experience with Christ and with the Holy Spirit as motivation for establishing the same type of relationship with one another. Philippians 2.1 reads, if, there, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from, from love, any sharing in faith, any compassion and sympathy, Paul says, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then in, the verse, then in verses 3 and 4, he identifies the very issue that could stop them from honoring his plea for unity. A paraphrase of those verses might read, do not allow self-ambition self to take hold of you. Think of the other person first. For each of you looks after the interest, for if each of you looks after the interest of another person, no one will go without what they need. Paul instructs us to reject self-interest. These words seem idealistic when compared to the way the world unfolds before us. Still, Paul's words point us back to God's original plan for creation. An intention God has not given up. Our experiences in life seem so far from Paul's instruction that they can be easily dismissed as an impossibility. But if Christians who are called believers don't believe God's intent, who will? 
Paul presents Jesus as the model of the one who's already demonstrated that this is possible. Because our Christology or the way we think about God lacks balance, or the way we think about Jesus lacks balance, there's a tendency to give more attention to Jesus as God than Jesus as human. In his nature, Jesus was God, but he lived his life on the earth wholly and completely as a human being. This is what Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8 reveals about him. Who, it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus could have used his status and his position while living in the earth, but instead Jesus emptied himself, meaning he chose not to access any of that power that was available to him as God. Instead, he took on the form of a, a servant. He came to take on the role of one who serves the interests of others. He chose to serve the interest of God and he chose to serve the interest of humanity from a human perspective. He did not choose awesome and incredible power. He did not choose to announce the beginning of his ministry through some self-generated miraculous display. That wasn't his way. He didn't choose to assume a throne on the earth. It wasn't his way. He did not choose to, the comfort of being the second person of the Trinity and announcing it to the world. He simply chose to believe that God's way of living in the earth was better than the craftings of humanity based on self-interest. He taught and demonstrated what was possible as a human being. In the book, City of God, City of Satan, the writer, Richard Linthicum, discussed the Apostle Paul's developing theology of the city. And remember, theology is just faith seeking understanding. Within that discussion, Linthicum explained what the Apostle meant in, the, in many of his writings when he used the terms thrones and dominions, principalities and powers. Thrones, he said, represented the institution of power in a state, a city, or economic body. Dominions represented territory, influenced and ruled by the throne. Principalities were persons occupying the thrones. And the powers of the throne uh, comprised of rules, legalities, traditions, sanctions that legitimized the throne's rule over its territory. In choosing to live his life in the way God intended for all humanity, Jesus challenged the then existing thrones, those that existed spiritually and those that existed in our human systems. Jesus' honoring of God's plan as a human being threatened the, the supremacy of existing thrones, as did his clarity regarding the boundaries of God's kingdom. Though he recognized the existence of those thrones, those dominions, those principalities, he refused 
to submit himself beyond the bounds of their authority. Neither would he faint in the presence of their power. Against the power of the thrones, dominions, and principalities, Jesus armed himself only with his relationship with God and the relationship he desired to have with humanity. The scriptures attest to this in, many, in his many quotes that begin with words like, my father has said, in my father's house, in the kingdom of God is, is like this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and many more. His weapon was that he lived in the interest of others. Living out God's plan for humanity cost Jesus dearly. As a result of his refusal to recognize the supremacy of those thrones, those dominions, those principalities and powers, all acting in self-interest, they rose up against Jesus demanding submission or death. And Jesus chose to be obedient to the relational intent of God to righteousness and justice for creation and paid the ultimate price, his death as a criminal upon the cross. Jesus himself said, no one has greater love than this than to lay down one's life for his or her or their friends. That's John 15, verse 13. Jesus lived as a human being, and Jesus died as a human being. Jesus allowed his death. And God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and exalted him so that he now sits as the principal authority upon the throne over every principality who exists, who executes power including and not limited to the economic, political, and religious principalities of our very own country, the United States. For he is king of kings, and Jesus is Lord of lords. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Philippians 2, 9-11 says. And God has given him a name that is above every name, so that in the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So how shall we live? Philippians goes on in that second chapter, verses 12 and 13 to say, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you and in me and enabling us to live, to will, and to work for God's good pleasure, God's intent. In the second chapter of Philippians, Paul has moved from a call to unity to a call to be like Jesus, and then he presents us with a call to action. He asks that the believer obey and act just as Jesus did. Having Jesus as Savior does not mean that believers get to skip participation in the plan of God to remain in a holding pattern until it's time to go to heaven. 
No, it means that we struggle and fight to work out God's plan, our salvation, right now, here in the earth. Yes, there will be successes and there will be failures in our attempts, but we have a promise from the Almighty that as we do the work of turning from ourselves to God and others, God is with us and God is enabling us. As God enabled Jesus through the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life and the presence of the Holy Spirit in ours. How will this call to action help the well-resourced, discontinued practices of self-interest that serve as a cause of poverty and supports its continuation? The call to action is a corrective to the well-resourced Christians in all works of life, in all walks of life first. We have been entrusted with the message of the gospel to live it and then to teach it. Making disciples is about far more than getting new believers to attend church or having a regular quiet time. Discipleship is about helping others develop the discipline to take the risky yet just stance against oppression and exploitation. Discipleship is about joining Jesus in his stand against the supremacy of spiritual and human thrones and dominions and principalities and powers and imaginations that work to exalt their authority above his. The call to action will only work to discontinue these practices if we let go that clutch hold we have on self-interest. And I'm not talking about the care that one should have for ourselves, for clearly the word of God also tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we have a system that self-interest is king. It makes the world go round. But he's calling us to let go of self-interest and to hold tightly to our responsibility to act in the interest of the whole. We must engage the powers, the wealthy, the business leaders, the institutions, the Christian church, and extend the correctives and invitations to serve for the common good. Why is that? Because as Christians, we've been called to do this. Our job is to be a prophetic community where our actions and our words speak in contradiction to the existing systems. We must speak and act. God has anointed us, empowered us to confront the powers and to call and call them to join in solidarity for the salvation of the human community. Let me say these final words. Shall we bow to a business and economic practices that encourage us to repeat the failures of the first couple? I say no. As stated earlier, the problem of sin or separation is directly related to the fact that human behavior is focused on maximizing our own utility, our rights to go after our own wants and desires and to be the first and foremost in our intent, despite what happens to others. There is no way to reconcile that kind of self-interest 
with the message of the gospel. Some have attempted to demonstrate that self-interest can be harnessed to help when used to exclude an immoral individual or an immoral activity. But what happens when the immoral person is the leader of the community? What are we to do when those who are supposed to safeguard us have abandoned us? Or what do we do it's a place before people, so much so that our institutions serve business, this thing called business, before they serve the people. Self-interest is too narrow a standard under which to operate. We're mandated by God. God's ethical standard is to be prepared to seek the well-being of others. Christians must lead the effort to change the American economic, political, religious, and social systems through engaging them and transforming their power. Success must be redefined. We will be successful when we help the well-resourced to understand that all our institutions must exist for reasons beyond individual or constituent profit. The measure of the actual success should include the impact of the business, the politics, the religion, and so on, on the public or the common good. There is much more I could say, but I'll conclude with, 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 these, with this. Just as sin is not a private matter, neither is salvation. We are saved as individuals who are then restored to the human community to seek its health and its wholeness. From the beginning, God said that being alone was not good. God calls God's children to perseverance in our endeavor for unity. The cause of unity is so important that in addition to the gift of Jesus Christ, God gave gifts to the members of Christ's body for its edification, for its uplifting, uplift in love. God gave us the means to serve one another, to support one another, to champion each other's unique purpose in the earth. For your purpose is connected for my benefit and my purpose is connected to your benefit. Not all self-interest from a God, for in God, not for self-interest, sorry. For in God's economy, everyone benefits because everyone both gives and receives. We must recognize that we do nothing by our own strength, nor by our own ability and skills. The love affair America has with this image of a single individual pulling themselves up from their bootstraps is a lie. It's a myth. For even God says, when describing the body of Christ, In 1 Corinthians 12, it says the head. And who was that? Jesus. That even the head cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. God has given everything to us, including the bootstraps that others lace for us until we were able to do it for ourselves with the intention that we would participate in lacing the boots of others until they can do sharing it as well. This is the way God intended life to be 
from the beginning a shared mutuality. And God has not given up on that. God, I have not given up on that. I embrace it. I yearn for it. I hunger for it. And the scripture says, blessed is every human being who hungers and thirsts for this kind of righteousness, this right living between one another. For it says, we shall be filled. In spite of what we see to the contrary, God is still at work in the earth, completing that good plan. Do you believe this? Are you acting on that belief? We stand together in faith because we do. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, our God and our Mother, our God who shares life with us as Holy Spirit and leads us through the high places and the low places of life, we look to you to teach us and instruct us on how to live in a way that's balanced, where we love as we love ourselves and we, con we consider the whole Father as what's primary in lifting up the world, lifting up Philadelphia, lifting up our families, Lord. We ask you to help us to live in a way that we consider the interest of others. Lord, help us to think about education, to think about housing, to think about food in ways that benefit all of us and to know that you have gifted us, you have anointed us, poured yourself out in unique ways in each of our lives to participate in bringing wholeness to our family, the human community. We need you now. We need you as they needed you before and you got acted and empowered your people to change the world. And so we ask you to act and empower us to change the world now and not to give in to fear and not to give in to what we see because we walk, God, by faith in you, that he who began a good work in all of us, that you, God, are able to complete. So we look to you for this, Lord, and we need you. I ask your help to explain the response, the application of this particular sermon to this particular community that's listening to my words. In Jesus' name, amen. So for application, the Lord has pressed upon me years ago that when I preach the word that I, I need to give people an opportunity to respond. And I want to invite you to a particular response today. Last week, we celebrated 9-11, and we remembered the lives lost from, acts, from an act of terror. So many people died, and many of our heroes from 9-11 have died or are suffering from illnesses today caused by the carcinogens released in that debris as they sought to rescue people who were trapped in the debris where they sought to return the bodies of loved ones to their families. These are the people we remember this week. And we remember and say to say no to aggressive acts like this. We must stand up to acts of terror. Now that was a terror that came from outside of our country. 
but we're also facing today a terror that comes from within. We've lost, we lost on 9-11 over 2,000 people. It was too many lives lost. And yet we're facing terror today, seen through COVID and our responses. We are set to lose a hundred times as many people in a few months. We'll hit 2,000 lives, 200,000 lives lost. And when we add in police violence over the decades and how it's harmed us, we can't measure the numbers and the disparity in education and how that's harmed us and how housing disparity has harmed all of us and employment discrimination has harmed all of us and the fear that people carry because of these things we are living in many ways in a state of terror and we are facing a time when the ideals of America, the things that make us unite, a united and growing nation, the we, the people is threatened. And we have to act and not just complain or yell at our televisions, screens, or live in fear. There is a particular response I'm seeking from everyone that's listening or will listen in the coming weeks to the sermon. The scripture admonishes us who believe. It says, if my people who are called by my name will seek and shall humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Now, I heard the scripture they use in church. And sometimes in the ways that it was used to talk about social issues, I disagreed with. And I think it made enemies of people who are even within the body. My desire is not to do that with the scripture. My desire is to really believe what God says. Look, do you see evil taking place among you? Do you see things going crazy? Then I want you as a people to stop, to humble yourselves, even if it's not your personal sin, but our collective sin. And I need you to pray and to seek me. So in sincerity, I'm asking you to join me in giving up at least one meal a week to pray for our country until our election season is over. There is so much fear and anxiety in our country right now. People are walking on eggshells. There are Disruptions of violence that are happening and people who would normally be peaceful individuals are coming out of themselves and, and striking out in anger and in some self-righteous kind of attitude that says, my, my self-interest is of more importance than yours. You won't inflict yourself upon me. When God says it's not that way, we're supposed to live with and for each other. The human community building up itself in love. So yes, it's good to attend protests and to feed people and to give money to, to feeding, to, to, uh, to hunger programs, to share um, what we are thinking on, on the internet with our neighbors, to, to help our neighbor with educating each other's kids when we, as we can 
you know, share so one can go to work and one can care for the kids. All of that is wonderful. But there is something that is a unique responsibility for the body of Christ. And that's fasting and prayer. We fast to hear God more clearly, not as some outward demonstration of how holy we are. We fast to confess that our acts are separating members of our community and that we've done wrong with, to each other. We fast to demonstrate a willingness to humble ourselves, to show how serious we believe the situation is and our request is to God for intervention. I really feel led that this is something we as a community should do. So I'm asking you to intentionally, as the old folks used to say, turn over your plate, meaning to let go of at least one meal during each week until we finish the election season. I don't say election day because it won't, everything won't be over that season and the repercussions that will come out of the, of the election, we need to cover the human community in America and the world, but in America with prayer. Our country needs us. They need us now and we need your response. It is a spiritual act of worship. So, here we go, in simple words, fast at least one meal. If you have experience with fasting and you want to fast the entire day and then just eat one meal or whatever, you're free to do that. But as a community, I would like us to fast one meal one day a week because I don't know where we are as a full community on fasting. And then instead of eating that meal at that time, I would ask you to please pray. And if you're fasting something like lunch, I'd ask you, whatever meal, I ask you to go for a walk in your community and pray as the Spirit leads you for your community, for our city, cities, our states, our country. For those globally, I ask you to do the same for yours and to pray for our leaders. Because listen, Mosaic, we've been anointed for this. We've been anointed and given a prophetic voice to have in our community. We need to do this work too. Now, I'll be fasting lunches on Thursday, just as a, a reference point. And you're invited to share that with me that time with me on Thursdays and you'll see me walking around, whether I'm at church, walking around that community or here or wherever I am, but that's my plan. If you have a medical condition that keeps you from fasting, what I'm gonna ask you to do is to continue to eat, but fast something else and to also join in walking the community and praying. And I want to see what happens with this. If you can connect with somebody and wanna do a prayer walk with them, do it. On Sunday, after our Mosaic homecoming service, I'm going to be at the church on Sunday at 2. And anybody that wants to walk with me around our West Philly community and pray, you're free to join me. So pray that God will change and transform us 
to increase our understanding where self-interest is and where common, where the common good is, that God would help us to move as we fast and as we pray into greater depths of unity. This, I ask of you, please consider. And so, Andrew, at this point, uh, can we return to worship? Uh, Kennedy's gonna sing for us, and Kennedy's gonna bring us, you know, some, um, some hip hop uh, music to share. Um, because we need to reflect the community that we are a part of, and we're excited to be to be a part of that. So listen and consider the words you hear. We'll be back shortly. Kennedy, if you want to uh, just set up this video here and this song, then that'd be awesome too. Yeah. Um, so this this next song is called Three Chord Bond" by Propaganda, who's a rap artist who calls himself a poet, a political activist, a husband, a father, and an academic. Um, and I know a lot of times we consider worship to be the time of church where we feel like um, a tangible sense of participation. And we sing along, we feel the music, etc. Um, but just like the act of fasting, let's take today and this moment and this next song as worship um, through active listening. So it's a moment where we aren't considering ourselves, but somebody else's story or the community around us. So um, let's let propaganda's words and his narrative, um, let them challenge you and strengthen you and listen and grow our community together. When you mimic the sweet revenge Homies not stupid can tell the difference between Admiration and mockery, please So we protected our music Cause truthfully we thought it was all we had And watch y'all make a killing off it Hip-hop to jazz Elvis the Fats, Domino, Patrick, Gwen Stefani And the fact them names are foreign That's just what I'm pointing to Y'all imitated Jamaicans Attempted to grow treads And commodified reggae That's Marley's face on everything Your children use as faith As an excuse to smoke weed So we grew angry Unaware of God's plan for rescue But we ain't no better Got a flawed version of personhood Identifying only by being victims of oppression A true story And I 
watch them covet your camaraderie Your sense of family, your food and work ethic But not your struggle And we were jealous you had a homeland And a native tongue and your parents spoken And we were just the offspring of the broken Hopeless, so we all learned Swahili As if we knew we were from that region Silly we know, but what you supposed to do When all you know, your closest cultural customs Are similar to your captors Our pastor, easier to blame Than economic woes on filth filtering through our borders Immigrant job hoarders We should all just deport them all on one bus It's stupid us, broad brush We thought y'all were all Mexican, it's dumb, I know I'm sorry, it's embarrassing, forgive us We were jealous, we ain't no better Selfish, angry, prideful Willie Lynch and fighting over the same piece of mud pie Como se dice, lo siento mucho, por favor We all need grace much more, that's a true story your privilege, your generational wealth, your unquestioned personhood, but not your struggle. And we felt it wasn't fair. We wanted your options, your grasp on proper doctrine and literature. It's silly, huh? Your American dream apple pie worked for you, so we worked for you. You made it seem so easy. Grit your teeth, you could succeed too. We ain't know your story, shoot. We thought white was white, not Irish or Celtic or the Bolshevik plight or the pain of Barrett Stains inherited. You said you wasn't there. It ain't fair. You wouldn't dare, but we ain't care. But we ain't no better. You told us you struggled too Rednecks and trailer parks Me and you were cool, I hurt like but you that was fire for the fuel That boiled into them riots Y'all were so confused Truthfully so were we But now we understand We suffered the same stain We gained from a shared ancestor We all descend from Adam's sin Riddles every inch of us But now we see clearly That crimson cord is one road Made from many strands And each its own color But now it clearly stands Dyed the colored red From our savior's bloodshed And a rope finds its strength and the multiple lines wrapped around each other until they all perfectly intertwined. So let's just call it even and walk through life knowing that a three chord bond's not easily broken. Thank you. 
my sister. So just call on my sister when you need a hand. We all need somebody to lean on. I just might have a problem that you'd understand. We all need somebody to lean on. strand cord is not easily broken. Uh, no truth to those words. So, you know, I envision a day where we'll have, you know, we'll have choirs and we'll have hip-hop groups and we'll have all kinds of music coming out of our place. Um, so these are seeds being sown toward that. Kennedy, you're a beautiful um, and wonderful addition to the staff. So thank you for that. Thank you for all the music. Um, so at this point, um, I will Pastor Angel, I think you, you went back on mute on accident. So I don't know what you heard, but I want to talk about the uh, Mosaic Homecoming. Um, and that's happening on the week of September 26th and 27th, uh, Saturday and Sunday. On the 26th, we're going to have um, our scavenger hunt. Um, and just to give you a, a few details, more will come out in our newsletter on Wednesday, so please look for that. Um, but we want to ask everybody that has a mosaic t-shirt that you would wear it on that day so we can see each other and the kids that have one theirs. Um, so we can recognize each other as we're moving around the community. Um, again, details will be released next week. Not the hunt itself, but details on the process. Um, so check your newsletter. Um, it's gonna take place between our church and Clark Park. We have uh, two, and a half, two hours, two and a half hours to have this thing done wrapped up so our kids are going to have their own scavenger hunt and it'll include stops uh, for 
support front porch activities at some of the homes of our members and their teachers. So they get a chance to see each other and visit and have a little activity. No worries, we are thinking about what it means to uh, have social distance to provide um, sterilized utensils, crayons, things like that for the kids. So all of that is in mind so we can be healthy, okay? Um, so they're gonna have those stops. And, um, and then for the adults, we're just asking you guys to form small groups of no more than 10 that can, that can no more than six that can physically distance when they move around because we wanna stay safe. Masks are required, okay? And so you will move through the community to different locations. And I, we just ask that your group takes pictures as you hit stops on the scavenger hunt or as you obtain items that are asked for on the scavenger hunt, okay? I'll begin with you, no worries. We will have sterilized things and made sure that they're healthy. Um, we will have um, hand sanitizer located throughout the hunt uh, so folks can be healthy. Again, please wear your mask. Um, and then we will meet up at Clark Park just to spend a little bit of time together and talk. And you are free to make your own decisions about what you want to do when we get to Clark Park. I didn't ask for space. Um, it becomes a whole different matter if, if we did, did that. But we can gather if you guys want to spread a blanket and talk or a couple of blankets and talk to each other and things like that. That's wonderful. We're going to practice social distance or physical distance in caring and catch up with one another. So that's great. Next, we have uh, a video from um, our kids ministry. Uh, all the kids have returned to school now. Excuse me. And so we want to celebrate them. Happy new school year. And we want to pray for them that they have a wonderful experience. So um, Melissa is going to share with us regarding that. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melissa Min, and I'm the Director of Children and Families here at Mosaic. It's so wonderful to be with everyone this morning. Happy September. And as you all know, September means it's back to school season. Um, and our kids, teachers, administrators, and those who work with students as support staff members are all returning back to school. Um, and for most of us, school looks very different this year. Some of our kids are learning in front of a computer from home or in a learning center. Um, some of our kids are actually back in their physical school spaces, but they're wearing masks and they're um, staying six feet apart from each other. Um, and there may not be hugs or handshakes or high fives from the teachers and friends that they're so used to being physically close to. So this is a really challenging time um, for our children and our families and all those who are educators and work with uh, students during the school year. And not only is it a challenging time for them, it's really a challenging time for all of us. Um, however, this time is also an opportunity to lean into God's promise that he's watching over us and taking care of our needs. Uh, today and forevermore. So there will still be learning and there will still be growing for all those who are going back to school. So last week, um, I'm sure this also happened to you, my Facebook feed just blew up with very cute pictures of all my friends' kids, some of your kids going back to school. 
Um, some of them had their uniforms on, some of them still had their pajamas on, some of them um, were smiling happily in front of their computers and holding up signs. Um, and I was really um, inspired to put together a slideshow of our mosaic children who are returning back to school. Um, and um, so I put together a little slideshow to share with you all this morning. And it's set to music created by our new worship coordinator, Kennedy Lamascus. So a big thanks to Kennedy for creating this beautiful song that's based in scripture. So sit back and enjoy everyone. say a prayer of blessing for our students at Mosaic and for all of the educators and administrators um, at our church. So if your child is in the room with you, I invite you to place your hands on your child. Um, teachers, administrators, and those who work with students during the school year, I also invite you to place your hands on your heart during this prayer of blessing. So let us pray. God of wisdom and of love, bless all of these students, teachers, administrators, and school support staff as they begin another new school year. Help each child here hold on to the truths that you have created each of them in your divine image. And therefore, let each child declare and own that they are beautiful, loved, worthy and offered belonging in your family and kingdom. Bless their relationships with their peers and their teachers, helping them to tap into the divine light and love that exists in each of them, moving them to be kind and compassionate 
to others and to seek justice always. Cover them in your protection, O Lord, so that they will find good friends who will love them and bring out the absolute best in them. Bless them with good teachers who lovingly and gently guide them to be the best student and citizen that they can be. Also protect them, dear God, from harm and illness during this time, keeping each one of our children, their families, and all educators safe, healthy, and happy. And even though the school year looks so very different for most of our children and teachers, we pray, God, that you will watch over them wherever they are, now and forevermore. Bless their studies so that they will find subjects that light them up and help them be curious about the world that you have created. And when they struggle in any of their subjects, bless them and give them the courage to ask for help when it's needed and the strength and perseverance to push forward through all challenges. Bless them to be lifelong learners who never cease to ask questions and who are self-motivated to keep learning and growing. Protect them and keep them from physical and spiritual, spiritual harm, O oh Lord. May they feel safe in their homes, their schools, their classrooms, and in their relationships. Bless the adults in their lives with the wisdom to lead and guide these children, and with the divine love to support and encourage them always. And bless us, O Lord, with your wisdom and grace. May we be the type of community that takes good care of these children as, as if they were our own, as part of our sacred responsibility. And God, we also pray for and we lift up all of the teachers, administrators, um, and those who work with children in a school setting. We pray that they will have loving and strong relationships with their students, their coworkers, and the families that they serve. We pray that their classrooms, virtual or physical in space, would be safe spaces where students can thrive, learn, and live into their fullest potentials. We pray a special prayer of protection over them for their own physical and spiritual health and well-being. We pray for an amazing school year, God. And we pray this scripture as a blessing over each child, teacher, and administrator at Mosaic. God will watch over you when you go out. God will watch over you when you come in. God will watch over you now and forevermore. Psalm 121 seven through eight. In the name of Jesus, we lift up these prayers to you. Amen. Amen. Our uh, benediction today comes from a book entitled In the Sanctuary of Women by Jan L. Richardson. We long for peace. We long for justice and we thirst for righteousness and we are grateful to our God because, again, God says that those of us who thirst for these things, God
God is going to fill us. And so I wanted to read, Longing Stands Next to Patience. Longing would sometimes like to be assigned a different spot, would like to be less near to one who approaches everything with such equanimity, would like some distance from the measured way that patient mark, patience marks time, holds herself with such politeness toward its passing. Patience knows this about longing, accepts it, even loves it about her. That makes longing crazy. Patience has not told her she has some envy of longing's perfect ache or that she thinks it must be an art to hold oneself so perpetually poised toward the horizon. For her part, longing has not confessed that there are days she finds patience restful, soothing, a relief. Meanwhile, little by little, so slowly its appearance will startle them both. A horizon is drawing near. May longing and patience teach you and me by turns. Not just the fire, but the tending of it. Not just the well, but the digging. Not just the vision, but the enduring it asks by day and by darkness drawing us on. May you be blessed in your day today. I'm thankful for everybody who participated in pulling the service together. We are Mosaic Community Church. We, this is not a service that I put on for the church or an individuals do. We do this together and we will continue to expand the way we worship God together online and the things we do in community. We are Mosaic and we do this together. May you be blessed in your living, in your loving, and in peace.